Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And, and this, this is Celebrity Memoir Book Club. Claire. Yes. Here at Celebrity Memoir Book Club, what are we up to? We are reading books, dissecting them, and giving you our hottest takes. And I want to say something. Sure. From the bottom of my heart, I understand that we are not for everybody. And to those people, I want to give you what might be the greatest gift anyone has ever given you. Right in time for the holiday season. If you don't like what we're doing, feel free to never listen to us again. I'm not saying this mean. I'm saying this to help you. There are people, and I see them in our reviews, and I see them in our TikTok comments. They'll be like, I hate what you do, and every time I listen, I hate it more. And to you guys, I want to say, please, sleep easy at night. We only get 24 hours a day. Feel free to not listen to us. Block us. Well, Beyonce gets 24 hours a day. We don't. Anyway, I want to say that if you don't love what we're doing, that is a-okay by me. Just literally don't tell me. And if you do like us, I want to say thank you so much. I like you so much too. I have a huge fucking crush on you. And I will be thanking our five-star reviewers at the end of this episode with a hearty, hearty thank you. So before we get into it, we have a couple housekeeping items this week. This Thursday, we are back at Nikki's Unisex, December 2nd, 7 p.m. We're going to be there every Thursday at 7 for an incredible comedy show, a fresh lineup every week, and Claire and I and our friend Stuart Fullerton hosting. It's going to be so fun, and I hope you can make it. And we have fresh merch out, brand new wormy shirts, our second run of items and I am really excited about them. Our friend Adrian, who does all of our podcast art designed them and she did an impeccable job. So I hope you guys like it. Ashley. Yes, Claire. If you were a celebrity, what would you say the chapter of the last week's memoir would have been? I guess I'm getting engaged. I just came home from Thanksgiving and everyone I know is engaged. Sure. And at this point I I'm doing a lot of active work to be like, you guys know that we don't have to, right? Not everyone has to get married all the time and it's fine. I had this conversation at Thanksgiving dinner with my cousin's grandma from her other side of the family, who is this cute little old lady from Manhattan, the most adorable you've ever seen. I loved her so much because when I walked in, she looked at me and she said, my, you are impressively tall. And I said, thank you so much. And then we were talking at dinner and she said, so are you dating anyone? Are you planning on getting married soon? And I said, I am not dating anyone at the moment. And for a second, the light left her eyes. It vanished like it, it was just blown out by a gust of wind. And then I saw her come back. She came back and she said, that's okay because you shouldn't be with just anybody. You should be with someone equally tall. <laughs> she said, you should be with someone who makes you better and good. Someone who does things for you and you do things for them and you have a happy life together. And I was like, yes. Do you know what? That actually is really true. And the amount of strength that she mustered to tell me that I at 30 years old was allowed to be single. I was like, this is the strength that I would like to welcome into my life. <laughs> <laughs> she will not make it to Hanukkah. <laughs> you killed that lady by making her say that too you. I hope you're happy, you single selfish bitch. <laughs> I just want to say thank you to her. And I want to tell you guys, if you're not engaged, that's also okay. Claire. Yes. What would you call your memoir chapter from the past week? The rent is too damn high. <laughs> the rent, of course, being how much it costs to rent the right to go to Legoland for just 24 hours. Wait, you went to Legoland? No, we couldn't. The rent was too damn high. <laughs> how much is Legoland? $125 per person for the okay, day. Okay, what the fuck is Legoland? I will never know because I can't afford it. I always thought Legoland was just a store. It's a land? I literally couldn't afford to go. So How we much land, like square footage wise? Ashley, I'm telling you, they did not let me in the gate. <laughs> I just think that... 
for us to live in a society sure. where a couple of parents can't take a couple of their kids to... To eat some Legos. I don't know what... I guess stub your toe over and over and over until you have no more toes. I'm sorry. Someone has to put their foot down and say, that's highway robbery. To have a nice afternoon with the children. I guess you don't know what was in there. It could have been $125 worth of entertainment. I don't think you should ever spend more than like $10 on a toddler to have fun because they're like forgetful and don't even remember. True. Should we get into this week's book? Yes. Before we get into it, what did you know about Yolanda Hadid before we opened it? I mean, I knew a lot. I've been watching her since Real Housewives of Beverly Hills with the world's most famous lemon grove and world's most expensive refrigerator. Of course, we've been watching her out Kris Jenner, Kris Jenner herself, by making two ladies the most famous supermodels of all time. And then, of course, I've been following closely with the recent hullabaloo of one Zayn Malik striking Yolanda Hadid. That is a hullabaloo. So, I mean, I'm just deeply aware. What about you? I knew that she was Gigi Hadid and Bella Hadid's mom. I know that she's potentially going to be Dua Lipa's mother-in-law. I don't really know who the son is. That's pretty much it. I knew that she was like pretty and on The Real Housewives. I have to ask you one last question, Ashley. Of course. Believe me. I actually don't. Yolanda Hadid, or as many call her, yo, stop it. One of the biggest mysteries of this book was why all of the men in her life are always like, yo, come to my house. Yo, are you okay? Yo, what's up? (laughs) It took me three or four experiences of being taken aback by the fact that all of her husbands speak like this to be like, oh, that's her name. They're not just calling up and going, yo, I'm having a dinner party at my house. Come. Yo, 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 you're invited. From the beginning, this book is less a memoir and more a medical journal. And I don't mean a medical journal like a scientific journal. I mean a medical journal like when you're sick and you keep a journal being like, I don't feel so good today. I'm going to text my mom. So this book is just about her having chronic Lyme disease for the most part. So now let's get into the way this book actually starts with a disclaimer, a forward, an intro, and a prologue. The disclaimer is basically saying if you have chronic Lyme disease, this book is not a factual medical journal, so you have to go to your own doctor too. The foreword is written by Bella, Gigi, and Anwar. They each write a little mini essay basically saying that their mom is the best mom that ever lived and she's so great and so strong. And it's so sad to see how chronic Lyme's disease has knocked her on her touche. They call her a super mom a bunch, which I think is a word that she prescribed. The tick of her personality stuck its little head into their veins and said, super mom, super mom, say it. And now they are chronically calling her a super mom. Then we have an introduction where she says that she's been battling Lyme disease. And while she used to be a multitasking superwoman, now this global epidemic struck her down. And finally, we reach the prologue where she talks about her life before she was famous. So I'll take it from there. I want to do a disclaimer of our own. We are not here to deny anybody's lived experience. Obviously, a lot of people suffer from chronic illnesses. I think there's a lot of unexplained stuff. And I think that the medical system is deeply broken. I mean, I don't think. I know. That being said, if any disease, if any underserved community of people in any capacity were to have a spokesperson, I think to have Yolanda Hadid be the self-appointed face of anything is a disservice to everyone involved. 
Spoiler alert, she is a crazy person. <laughs> I think she is a toxin all her own. She is a leaky implant <laughs> upon the Lyme community. <laughs> Truly, what we're about to say, it's only about Yolanda. I wish everybody out there nothing but health and wellness and to be believed. Specifically women, a lot of people do not get believed by their doctors and that sucks. I will say Yolanda Hadid, that's not her problem here. We'll get into it. We'll get into it. I just it. want you to know, we're not making fun of you. We're not making fun of your aunt. We're not making fun of anybody you know. We're making fun of yo. yo. <laughs> Yolanda Hadid was born January 11th, 1964 in a small town called Papendracht. With just 5,000 people, she was in a regular family, a mom, a dad, a brother. Very, like, small town. You bike to school. You bike everywhere. I mean, that's very Holland-y. Holland-y. Holland-y's. She says she grew up on a farm. She never grew up on a farm. She grew up near a farm that she would go to a lot. When she was seven years old, her father tragically died in a car accident. And he was only 29. And that is a really traumatic, horrible thing to experience. She says, I made the strangely mature decision not to cry, but rather to be strong for the family that my father left behind. I have to take care of them. I'm not sure why I had the higher consciousness to think this way at the age of seven, but I did. And there's no sense that that her mom needed that. They moved down the street from her grandparents and also down the street from a farm. The mom really stepped up and took care of everything. And it felt like the mom really buried a lot down. She says, even though I felt the need to talk about my father's death, my mother never spoke about her loss. They forage ahead. And one of the things that Yolanda finds comfort in afterwards is horseback riding. She falls in love with a horse. Her mom lets her take it home, but it's fully her responsibility. So she has a horse that she keeps at a farm. She takes care of it every single day. In order to pay for it, she gets an after-school job. I do think she is a very hardworking, serious little girl. Cleanliness is close to godliness type person. Wake up at 4 a.m., go wash your horse. When she's 13 years old, she gets the Epstein-Barr virus, which is what causes mono. She's on bed rest for six weeks with that. And then a few months later, she has appendicitis and was hospitalized. She's a gymnast and a horseback rider. And her mom is like, you are taxing your body. You need to pick one. So she picks horses. One of the recurring themes of Yolanda's life is that however much you're doing, she is doing more. It is just a medical marvel to everybody who knows her that any one person can handle so much and that her whole life, she has just had her fucking plate stacked to the skies. She's spinning them too. I mean, here she is 13 years old first she's out for six weeks with mono then she's hospitalized with appendicitis looking back now i truly believe that this virus was probably the culprit of my health journey she also says later in the book that growing up she would always get the flu one to two times a year which is not something i've ever personally heard of she also says that growing up in holland she was eating very organic because that's just how it was so her body was very toxin free back then and Mm -hmm. it's like okay well were you sick and getting the flu every day or were you toxin free yeah i mean there's definitely two yolandas that she sees as existing simultaneously and it's the strong dutch farmhand dutch warrior she calls herself who's waking up every day and working harder than anybody's ever worked in their lives but then also if you kind of add up all the illnesses she's down and out quite often. Then when she's 16 years old, a friend of hers is a hairstylist and asked her to come to Amsterdam to model for a hair show that she's doing. Yolanda's like, I am not into the hair and makeup thing. She says, I've never worn a stitch of makeup or a pair of heels. It's just not her vibe, but she agrees to go because her friend needs her. And that's another Yolanda that we meet is the one who is always, always, always there for her friends unless she can't get out of bed, which is also often. So she goes to Amsterdam for this hair show and there one of the fashion shows needs a model and they ask her to model in the show. She gets to Discovered by Eileen Ford and basically from that moment forward she's an international model. For the next 15 years my life was very hectic and busy. I lived like a gypsy constantly on airplanes flying all over the world without much time off. I was a workhorse who always kept going no matter how I felt. Coming from humble beginnings was my greatest gift because of the motivation and hunger to be successful was ingrained in me. She works her ass off for 15 years. During that time though when she's 19 years old she's working in Japan. She pulls her back 
and is introduced to an acupuncturist. She goes, I was fascinated because it helped me immediately. So I got treatments every day for a couple of weeks. Then she's doing a shoot for Cosmo and they notice that she's looking a little yellowy, like Claire Mm -hmm. kind of. She goes to get tested and they find out that she has hep B, which she must have gotten from the acupuncture needles in Japan. She says back then they didn't use disposable needles. They would just sterilize them. Throughout this book, I had a doctor I was in contact with just to explain some of the things going on so I could understand because this is so medical. And she was saying that's probably extremely traumatizing to get hep B from somebody you trusted. And I do think that that's an important perspective going into this book is to have your father die at seven to get hep B. And I just want to say before we move on the symptoms of hep B, nausea, vomiting, weakness and fatigue, pain in your joints. Then a couple years later, when she's shooting in Spain, she finds out her mom has breast cancer and she flies home to help her mom recover. So there is a lot of medical trauma. This wakes her up and makes her realize that she wants to settle down, have a home, and start a family. Then in 1993, she's in Aspen, Colorado, and she is on a gondola with none other than Mohammed Hadid. They meet, they fall in love. It is happily ever after until he's cheating on her constantly. She calls him kind and very handsome. Is he very handsome? Is he kind? They get married (laughs) and have Gigi in 95, Bella in 96, Anwar in 1999, and then they're divorced in 2000. She says he's a good human being and a provider for his children and always has been an amazing son to his mother. But unfortunately for me, he's not a faithful husband. So they get divorced because he's a cheater, cheater, pumpkin eater. They spend the summer at their house in Mexico, living on the beach while she tries to figure out her next move and ultimately decides to move her children to Santa Barbara, Montecito. It's important to me that my children can attend public school and enjoy a simpler existence with horses and the benefits of a close-knit community. Please please, for your own benefit, don't even follow us. Just check out our Instagram. We will be posting photos of her cute little Montecito existence. But I do think she calls a cottage a couple times. She does call it a cottage. It is distinctly not a cottage. It is, some may call it a giant mansion in some of the most expensive property in America. It was in Santa Barbara Magazine. I have to say, this is a truly pleasurable experience for me because even though The Real Housewives, of course, is not, it's not perfect honesty. <laughs> No, it's not. (laughs) Yeah, but she directly transcribes scenes from The Real Housewives. Incorrectly. We went back and watched. We did some research because I am not familiar with The Real Housewives. And I would like to say, even though I am not familiar with what a fucking Looney Tune Yolanda is on television, it really comes through in this book. And I think it comes through even more when you directly compare what you can hear her with your own words say on camera. And then see how she rewrites it for the book. And the first of many interesting rewrites is calling it a simple little cottage. She mentions three more times that it was important that they go to public school and have a normal existence away from their father's money. Santa Barbara is like more expensive than Beverly Hills. In 2006, Mohammed Hadid calls her up and says, yo, I'm having a dinner party next Thursday and you should come. She can't. She's too busy with the children. Something about Yolanda Hadid is you've never seen a busier woman in your life. She has so many hats on. She's a mother, a former wife, a property manager, the property manager of the house that she lives in that she has a full staff to take care of. She's going to all these after school activities with her kids. Gigi and Bella are competitive horseback riders. They also do sports and other things. So in order to attend all of these various things, I mean, she is swamped. But he says again, yo, if you don't start making an effort to go out and meet people, you'll be single for the rest of your life. So she ends up going to this party and there she meets David Foster. David Foster is very important. I think we just referred to him in one of our recent books, Caitlyn Jenner's book, as famously married stepfather to the stars. David Foster has been married to Yolanda Hadid, Linda Thompson. 
He's currently married to Catherine McPhee. And I forgot who his first wife is. But his children are Aaron and... Sarah Foster. And then he has another one who's a stylist. He's just a, an oft-married man. He's an oft-married man and an oft-Grammy winner. I think that those are two cool things to be. I had a, a brief crush on David Foster watching Real Housewives, and then I got over it after I saw two scenes with him. But I do think he's charismatic and has 60 Grammys, which is attractive. So in 2007, she had been coughing on and off for months and experiencing sinus issues. She goes to see Dr. Sugarman, an ear, nose, and throat doctor in Beverly Hills, and he checks her thyroid and feels a large tumor. Of course, because of my mother's battle with breast cancer, I freak out when I hear the word tumor, and I don't think twice when an endocrinologist tells me that I should have my thyroid removed. After the surgery, the mass is sent for biopsy. It is discovered that three of my four parathyroid glands were encapsulated with my thyroid, so unbeknownst to the surgeon, they were all removed as well. So I actually looked this up. You have four parathyroid glands. They regulate your calcium and you can live with not just one, but even half of one. Okay. But everybody's body is different. She ends up going on a synthetic thyroid medication to help do what the thyroid did. And she starts experiencing side effects like hair loss, exhaustion, insomnia. Right. And I do think that being on synthetic hormonal regulators, it does take a lot of evening out. I know people who've had thyroid conditions and shit like that. And having an external synthetic source regulating what your body is supposed to do naturally, it takes a while to adjust and find the right dosage and medications that get it right. So in 2008, she's now dating David Foster and she's thinking about moving the family to Malibu. So she starts building her and David Foster's dream house. If you are a Real Housewives watcher, this is the house that she lives in with David Foster that overlooks the ocean. It's 12,000 square feet. It's on three acres of prime real estate. Every morning, she drops off the kids at school, drives 60 miles to Malibu to work on the job site with dozens of construction workers, and then drives back to Santa Barbara for school pickup at 3 o'clock. It's a crazy schedule. My afternoons and evenings are like those of many busy parents carpooling kids to and from volleyball, basketball, horseback riding, and tutors, cooking dinner, and helping with school projects and homework. I do this five times a week for two years, which is why I don't think much when I begin feeling more fatigued than usual and having migraines. She starts feeling fatigued and migrainey. After all, when you're strong-headed with a type A personality like me, you're determined to do it all. Nothing, no headaches, a fear of fatigue, or other symptoms is going to stop me. I'm on a mission to finish my house in Malibu. I'm not trying to diminish stay-at-home parenthood. I think that it's really hard and there's a lot of work that goes into it. Why did she have to drive two hours to the job site every single day? Was she physically building the house? Was she sitting there with a hammer and nails and they needed her labor? I just think that to be like, I did it all. It's like, did you need to? I do this with the help of Alberto and Blanca, an amazing couple who worked with me in Santa Barbara for five years before they moved with us to Malibu. She has them among other staff, but she has two full-time helpers. Like driving her, doing errands, shopping, cooking, cleaning. It's mid-2011 and about a year since my first symptoms have appeared. They come and go regularly. It's as if I have the flu for a week and then a little bit of reprieve and I think I'm over it. But she's like, something is going on. So I make an appointment with David's internist. And he just says, you have too much on your plate. Take it down a notch and give your body and brain a chance to rest. I'm not surprised to hear this. Of course, any doctor who sees a strong woman doing 100 things will tell her that she needs to slow down. And because Dr. Pirro is not just a doctor, but also a close family friend with whom we socialize, he is a front row seat to my juggling act. Dr. Pirro sees me managing a million things. Can you please list the million of things that she's doing? Including 
my children, helping David with his brand, organizing seating charts at his shows, taking care of my family in Holland, and running a big new house with a music studio. David and I are now engaged, so I'm also planning a wedding, working on my job on the series Dutch Hollywood Women, a show about four women who have made successful lives for themselves in America after leaving Holland. Yes, I am juggling a lot, but juggling is my forte and something I've been doing my whole life. Many people get overwhelmed when they have too many balls in the air, but I thrive on it. I want to discuss her balls that she's juggling what are they? So I do want to reiterate, prior to meeting David Foster, he had 60 Grammys and three wives. So this idea that she needed to show up and start running his music studio and brand. Like this isn't Chris and Caitlyn Jenner where Chris showed up and was like, you need to get out of the hole that you're living in and start running a business. David Foster was running a business. She consistently refers to him as a diamond in the rough that she found and polished. And I'm like, you are not only his fourth wife, but not even his final wife. He currently has a baby with Catherine McPhee. He's 72. These women are basically EAs. I know CEOs who've had personal assistants that have gone longer in their career with them. Then Yolanda went with David Foster. I mean, this whole thing of like setting up seating for his shows. Where are the shows? What do you mean organizing the seating at his shows? People just bought tickets or they didn't. The idea of like tending to his brand. David Foster was also married to Linda Thompson, who is, of course, the mother of Brody and Brandon Jenner. When they were together, David and Linda, Brody was on a show called The Princes of Malibu. So he was already like on reality TV. He is more ingrained in the Hollywood lifestyle than she could ever even dream of being. At the end of the day, she was on The Real Housewives because she was married to David Foster. Yes. He, with or without her, will continue to thrive. Right. I just don't understand what the juggling act was when it comes to David and running their house and things like that. So she keeps going and trying to figure out what all of her symptoms are. And people are like, maybe it is ADD or depression. And so they give her Adderall and antidepressants. She starts feeling very forgetful. She says she notices her handwriting gets bad. She says she struggles remembering things. She formerly had photographic memory. Also around this time, one of her best friends from Santa Barbara, Ellie, gets diagnosed with ALS, which is probably one of the more traumatic diseases that anyone can ever be diagnosed with. There is no cure. There is no even true treatment. It's just a death sentence. It's a degenerative disease where she's like slowly paralyzed. Until your body just stops functioning. And I would normally say this is tangential info, but I think it's really important for this book because Yolanda uses it as a yardstick to measure her own problems against and often finds them equal. I feel like to even mention it in this book is such a disservice to Ellie. It's so tangential in this book that I'm like, fuck, Ellie deserves a lot more than this. Except to be like, God, Ellie's so lucky because everybody can see her disease. Yeah, it's really sick. She's about to go on these depression medications. She also casually mentions that... She experienced depression when she broke her back giving birth to her son 12 years ago. I, again, called up my doctor friend and said, have you ever heard of this? And she actually went through medical journals. She like was searching through and she said, I can find almost no proof that this has ever happened. And she's like, there's a couple of cases, but it's mostly like osteoporosis fracture based. And from Google, we found that severe tailbone bruising can occur. So she immediately hates the Adderall. She takes antidepressants for three weeks. She says she doesn't feel anything, so she stops taking them. And the doctor's like, well, normally you have to take it longer. And I will say I think it's very irresponsible of a doctor to give somebody antidepressants. And not make them go to therapy. You're supposed to be heavily monitored when you start them because they could go in the other direction real quick. So she starts getting sicker and sicker. And one of the big things she loses is she says that she can no longer play with her son at night. Like they used to have a tickle game and she's too physically exhausted to tickle him anymore. 
And that's when she starts getting scared is when she's missing out on these important moments with her children. But November 11th, 2011, her and David finally get married. She's able to get through the day on adrenaline and she has fun and she dances all night. That night when we finally get back to our room, I am thoroughly exhausted and every inch of my body hurts. I tell myself that it's from carrying my beautiful hundred pound beaded wedding gown around all night. But as the days pass after the wedding, my body feels worse, not better. 2012 begins. My condition has declined gradually and life becomes a roller coaster of good and bad days. I used to like being at parties and could speak to dozens of people at the same time. I'd love to imagine what that means. I think that's either speech giving, court holding, or speed dating. I love to think that she's going to dinner parties and being like, how's your wife? How's your son? How's college? How's your business? How's your back? How's your friends? How's your family? How's your horse? And then just like going through line after line. Also, the same year, Bella goes from being a vibrant, funny, energetic, and outgoing child to a quiet, anxiety-driven teenager with intense symptoms, such as severe pain along her spine, extreme fatigue, and difficulty focusing in schoolwork. And then we discover that she had mono. Yolanda responds to this by saying, let's just homeschool her. Muhammad and David are totally against the idea, but she just thinks it's right. She also gets approached to do the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, and it is something she considers. She's already on a show called The Dutch Women of Hollywood, or whatever the fuck it is. She decides to sit down with her kids and talk to them about it, because it'll obviously affect them too, having cameras around the house. Although they are not thrilled about the thought of having cameras in our home, they understand my motive and they'll be happy to support whatever choice I make. In the end, my decision to be on the show was a family-based one. Now those back-to-back sentences make literally no sense. She says the kids weren't stoked on it. So for the family, she chose to go ahead with it? She has a very interesting parenting style and it's Do everything you can to make sure your children become famous models. That's the one and only goal she has for any of them. And she stops at nothing. Also, she thinks that being on The Housewives will help her with a product line she's trying to create based on love and romance that includes candles, greeting cards, and a unique flower surface. This, to me, as a Real Housewives connoisseur, is very (laughs) interesting because I made you watch The Real Housewives. What is a word that Yonalanda said so many times that if you drank every time you would die? Romance. When you go back and rewatch that first season with the perspective of, oh, she's trying to launch a romance-based business, it all makes sense why she acts like that. Because she is so insane the entire time, showing up to David's office with coffee in hand, showing up in lingerie, taking nude photos for him. She's obsessed with calling herself romantic. And you're like, oh, there was an end game here. Okay, okay. It's so funny. She goes, why is the divorce rate so high? I think these products can help rekindle the falling in love stage if both parties make the effort. That is such a weird thing for a divorced woman who's been remarried for less than a year to say. Like, you're not in the late stage of a relationship rekindling effort. You're you're a newlywed. She's hardly the person I would go to for marital advice. Something that comes out of this book is how much she needs her own money. I guess she's always planning for the future where Muhammad Hadid will not pay child support to her anymore. And she also is very aware that she is David's fourth wife. And she says, David, of course doesn't want to provide for my children. She's aware that a husband can only provide you financial security for so long because she clearly knows that while her goal is romance and keeping love alive, she doesn't expect her marriages to last. So she starts Housewives, but her health is deteriorating and she explains her presence on the show. She has a certain amount of energy every day and she conserves it for the show. And she's like, so while you see me on the show partying and whatever, actually... I spent three days in bed to prepare for that. One of her biggest issues is cognitive decline. She says she used to be the sharpest tool in the goddamn shed and it all went away. She's experiencing severe brain fog and she talks about the normal housewives arguments and how she's just unable to defend herself. She's unable to really snap back when people are coming for her because she just doesn't have the brain function anymore to think of witty retorts. 
I do wonder if she watched the show and realized she looked stupid. She's going to more and more doctors all the time, trying to find somebody who has any insight into what's going on with her. She reads this right up from her medical file. There's been a major disruption to the patient's lifestyle and ability to function. Clearly, she was functioning previously on multiple levels, performing a multitude of tasks, which would ordinarily overwhelm most individuals. She is obsessed with letting you know, right now I'm sick, but when I wasn't, I was better than you. I was the busiest woman in all of Montecito. So she's at Cedar sinai and she gets tested for Lyme disease, but her tests come back negative. And that doesn't resonate with her. Instead, they give her the diagnosis of chronic fatigue syndrome. And she's like, Mm-mm, I'm not fatigued. I'm something more. Her friend, Tom, Tom is described as her agent from 25 years ago, who was like a father figure to her. I think he's her assistant. Because he begins this journey with her and stays with her through all of it. It doesn't seem like he has any other life outside of helping her. When we meet Tom, he's helping her unpack her house. I think he's on the payroll in some way. Tom is the person who helps her go through all of the information. Because she can't think straight. So he goes, if it's chronic fatigue, we have the road to recovery. The top chronic fatigue doctor is in Belgium, Dr. Kenny Demerlayer. Let me call him and see if I can get you an appointment. So they get an appointment and David is not into it. David's like, what the fuck are you talking about? Just stay home and sleep. They gave you a diagnosis, deal with it. And she's like, it's not that. That's not the right diagnosis. I have to go to Belgium. And she calls her friend, Paul Marciano. She's like, I think I have to go to Belgium. And he says, if it feels right to you, go for it. Let me help with the airline tickets. I have tons of miles. Why can't she afford a flight? I do think that that's a weird rich person behavior where they're always like helping each other out for things they could 100% afford. I actually do think that that's like a real token of rich nonsense. She's like still going on vacation at this point too. She had just been on a trip that summer a few months earlier to Italy where they were like on a yacht for two weeks. And she was like, I was so sick on that yacht that I was wearing shorts and a t-shirt. Anyway, this is a quote that I really want to read because I think it gives a lot of insight into Yolanda's psyche. This is in response to the fact that David would not go with her to Belgium. Okay. When we met five years ago, I called him my diamond in the rough. He needed polishing and I rolled up my sleeves and got to work. 60 Grammys. I put him on a healthy diet, helped him lose 25 pounds, redid his wardrobe, and never missed one of his doctor's appointments. I was obsessed in a good way with his health regimen and kept careful notes on my iPhone of all of his medications, doctors, checkups, and test results. I realize now that what I did for David doesn't come naturally to him. I just think that, like, did he need that necessarily? No. You know how when you start a new job and you're, like, 20 years old and your dad is, like, make yourself necessary at work and that way they can never fire you? And, like, obviously that's bullshit. They'll fire you if they fire you. They'll fire me always. But I feel like that's how she approaches relationships. She's, like, make yourself necessary and then they can't break up with you. With Mohammed, he's a big real estate guy and she talks about being the interior designer and helping with a lot of the interior design for all of their big properties. She was trying to figure out ways to embed herself into these lives because there was never love involved. But she's like, if I can be an important aspect of the relationship where if we get divorced, he won't have any of his contacts anymore. Like if I lost my phone, what would I have? She was becoming his phone so that they would stay together. No, it's true. And I think it's interesting that right out the gate, David does not reciprocate. Right. Because my phone doesn't need me. So they fly to Belgium and she is diagnosed with chronic Lyme. Which, according to Wikipedia, is not widely recognized as a real thing. Lyme disease is a genuine medical condition recognized by the CDC and doctors. Chronic neurological Lyme disease, which is what Yolanda has, is not widely recognized by the medical community as something real. She finds out that she's allergic to pears, oats, peas, lentils, mushrooms, lobster, brewer's yeast, soybeans, egg whites, peanuts, cola, cabbage, pistachios, and barley. She also has really high levels of heavy metals in her blood. 
So she gets home and she's dealing with this new diagnosis that she feels explains a lot. The treatment for this, according to the Belgian doctor, is waffles. <laughs> no, it's actually 90 days of intravenous antibiotics. So she gets a port installed in her chest and she has twice a day a nurse come to her home and give her intravenous antibiotics. And it is intense. And so she starts experiencing these Herxheimer reactions, which is when enormous populations of bacteria are killed off with antibiotics. They release endotoxins and biotoxins into the blood and tissue faster than the body can handle it. Which is real. The immune system responds with a range of awful symptoms, fever, chills, muscle stiffness, very low blood pressure, severe headache, hyperventilation, rapid heartbeat, flushing, muscle and joint pain, skin outbreaks, and anxiety. She goes through this for 90 days. And it also coincides with the Real Housewives premiere of her first season. The funny thing is that right now I look exactly the way that I feel. But of course, the next day when the premiere photos hit, they tell a very different story. One that is merely perception and very far from the truth about what's actually going on in my life. I look perfect from the outside. My pink Cavalli gown brings color to my white pasty skin. And all of the weight that I lost from being sick makes my body appear perfect in photos. But who cares? After the premiere, she passes out. She's always pulling it together for her work obligations. She's not a quitter. If she has a contract, she's going to show up. The Housewives is a grueling contract. For like four months a year, she has to film. And then on the off season, when the show is airing, she has to write a blog post once a week about what airs. And she is having a tough time. She's so sick at this point, she says. She's 10 days in bed, one day off. She can't go to her children's recitals, plays. And you'll never guess what happens. Her best friend Paige goes through a messy, messy divorce. Yolanda's called in to be deposed. She makes it through the eight hours of deposition because she, more than a Lyme warrior, she's a good friend. And then Paige also has Lyme. Paige comes over to help Yolanda decorate her Christmas tree and she's repeating stories and Yolanda's like, something's not right with you, cowboy, is the exact quote. And they go get Paige tested and it turns out she has Lyme too. At this point, Gigi's about to turn 18. She wants to start modeling. Something that doesn't make sense to me about Yolanda's parenting style is she's definitely a very protective mother who wants to do everything for her kids and make it as easy as possible. But she says, going to school in the fall and working as a model on her days off, holidays, and maybe weekends will be a perfect combination. Education is very important, but I also want her to be completely financially independent by the time she is 21. I don't understand that. Me either. She has a really rich dad. She has a pretty rich mom. Why isn't she allowed to be a normal kid? I don't understand why she has to be completely financially independent by 21. But I also think it's very funny that when Gigi goes off to school, she insists on getting her a fancy apartment with a doorman off campus instead of getting her a roommate because she's like, she's going to be working. She's going to be studying. She's got a lot going on and I want her to be safe. So I'm going to set her up in this expensive off-campus apartment instead of just letting her be a student. It does cost a lot of money to live the life that you're setting her up for. After 90 days of antibiotics, she's still not better. So she's looking for something else to do. And she hears from Suzanne Summers about this place in Florida where they treat Lyme specifically. So her and her friend Paige, who has Lyme, and then also her sister-in-law, who also now realizes that she probably has Lyme too, all decide to go to this place for six weeks, where they live in a hotel and spend all day getting IV drips. Every night she likes to go for a walk on the beach and she feels like she's getting stronger because all she's doing all day is waking up, going to treatment, taking a walk on the beach and going to bed. That's her whole schedule. And she's like, it's amazing how much better I feel. According to this doctor, to successfully treat Lyme, you need to kill the bacteria and the biofilm. Lyme bacteria have a strong biofilm that can't be penetrated by antibiotics. So they have to do something else. So they do kill drips, detox IVs ozone, colonics, coffee enemas, among other things that are carefully thought out and tracked with weekly blood tests. She also finds out a lot about Lyme disease and its presentation across the world. She says, I had no idea that this was an epidemic and that more than 6,300 new cases are diagnosed each week. It just in the U.S. She also finds out that she has high levels of mold in her body. 
she really starts to see that God gave her this journey to help her be a voice for people with Lyme. And this starts the trend of her comparing it to HIV, AIDS, and cancer. But it's, like, worse. Lyme is six times more prevalent than HIV AIDS ever was in the early 1980s, but the public awareness about it is virtually non-existent. The world has come such a long way in uniting to help combat AIDS, so why haven't we come together for Lyme? David does not understand what's happening. During the six weeks that she's in Florida enduring this treatment, he insists that she come with him to this celebrity fight night in Phoenix. David is the musical director. He insists that she fly out, and it's important to David, and she sees it as her duty as a wife. She says, truthfully, I'm starting to feel that David is becoming unhappy with the fact that I can't be by his side the way I used to be. I went from being the funny girlfriend who was up for anything and had endless energy to the wife who is too sick to be by his side. He's lost his wingman, his partner in crime. Truly... He did marry a wingman. He didn't want to take care of anybody. You weren't partners in crime. You were like his helper. I think I described her as like a leased car. Like every couple of years, he gets a new wife model. Yeah. And he's not going to treat you shitty on purpose because you're his car. But he's not banking on you forever. No. So she gets back from this Florida retreat. And as becomes a pattern, she feels better for a few days, maybe even a week. Mostly all of these treatments help with inflammation but never really cure the symptoms or help her long-term. She comes back. She's not feeling that great, but she comes back and realizes something's wrong with Anwar, her son. For years, he's had chronic sinus infections, exhaustion, and joint pain so bad at times that he'd cry in the middle of the night. When I mentioned it to the pediatrician, he attributes Anwar's joint issues to growing pains and said that Anwar was going to be very tall. He also saw one of the best ENT doctors in LA. They always had a prescription for antibiotics and medications that would treat Anwar's symptoms without ever finding the underlying causes. Some doctors even blamed allergies, but... His test always came back with normal range. She runs it by one of her doctors and they're like, oh yeah, Anwar's got Lyme too. He doesn't seem shocked, but he's interested in how we're going to treat it. I don't want to do antibiotics, he says. Let's go the holistic route. I go from feeling scared to being enraged by the fact that there is no cure. Can you imagine like a 15-year-old boy being diagnosed with a chronic disease being like, I want to go holistic. At this point, too, she's seeking out other chronic Lyme people and she's going to lectures and she's starting to see evidence that they are finding Of his existence. For example, the bacteria from chronic Lyme is called a spirochete. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Spirochete. Sprockety. They have the skull of somebody who died of Lyme. And during his autopsy, they found that the spirochetes literally bored through the bone. And we found sprocketies, sprickets in the internet, and they seem pretty little. But I also wonder if that's chronic Lyme or acute Lyme. Tough to say. So she decides around this time to get her port out because these rounds and rounds of antibiotics aren't working and she feels like getting the port removed will be an important step in recovery and like feeling recovered. So she goes to get it removed. And obviously this is an opportunity to show her dedication as a mother. It's really important to her to note that while she was going to get her port removed, Gigi on Yolanda's way out the door says, don't forget we're starting the master cleanse, okay? Gigi says, I'll squeeze the lemons. I can't really think about a cleanse at the moment, but I smile at her. Of course, my love, I respond, not so sure. Gigi has seen me do this cleanse many times in her life, and recently it started to spark her interest. The master cleanse entails eating no solid food and drinking a tonic made out of lemon juice, cayenne pepper, maple syrup, and spring water in order to cleanse. It reboots your metabolism and energizes your body, mind, and spirit. For me, it's like practicing discipline. It's not intended for losing weight, but you do shed a few pounds, which I believe is mainly inflammation. I promised Gigi I'd do it with her before she shoots her upcoming guest campaign. The interesting thing about being a chronically ill mother is that no matter what your struggles are, the mommy duties never stop. I love that. I love that she's getting her port out, but she was like, let's make sure Gigi's not eating. The mommy duties never stop, Claire. 
I always have to make sure my daughter's starving herself because she needs to be financially independent by 21 or else she's worthless. And this is also an important time to point out the clips that you made me watch of Real Housewives where Yolanda is telling Gigi that if she wants to be successful, she has to stop eating. So she goes back to shooting Real Housewives around this time and she says the rest of the cast has literally no compassion for her illness. They were doing a shoot and she has to conserve her energy. So she goes to lay in the car while they're prepping the shoot just so that she can come out of the car, do her duties and then go home. And Brandy is the only one who comes out to the car to see if she's okay. And she cannot believe that these women who are literally not her friends and who are barely her acquaintances don't care about her. They are my coworkers on a reality TV show, which although it may seem more glamorous and interesting is no different from a job at a bank. It's a strange way to live, but this lack of authentic intimacy seems to be normal in this environment. It is. It's a workplace. It's a reality TV show. You can't believe there's a lack of authenticity. (laughs) It's not only the norm, it's the expectation. But I do think she has a lot of casual references to The Real Housewives and talking about how much effort she put into resting and preparing for scenes. And she'll be like, I rested for four straight days to be able to shoot a 10-minute scene. And then I rested for another week to recover from it because I see keeping my contractual obligation as the most important thing I can do. We went through and watched almost all of her scenes last night in The Real Housewives. And in the first two seasons, it's not 10-minute scenes. She goes on a week-long trip in Mallorca with Kyle Richards at one point where she's literally jumping off the top of a yacht. She talks about after that laying in bed for weeks. And it's like, no one made you jump off a boat. She had abs. She manages to go on a lot of vacations where she feels totally replenished and is able to swim and snorkel and have fun and walk around towns. And then the minute she gets home, all of a sudden she's like, I can't go to your soccer game, Bella. I'm sick. (laughs) Things get worse and worse for her and David. At one point, she goes out to visit Gigi in New York City because Gigi has a cold and it's two days before their anniversary. And apparently David Foster is mad that she would be in New York City for their anniversary. And I'm like, I don't know, David, it's your 19th anniversary with your 17th woman. Get over it. But I do find it interesting that Gigi has a cold and so she flies to be with her. Meanwhile, Gigi's focused on becoming financially independent. And you said this earlier, like, what does she want? Does she want her kids to need her at all times and drop everything and fly across the country to give Gigi orange juice? Or does she want them to be completely independent? I have a very sinister perspective of what Yolanda wanted, and it's for her children to keep her financially afloat. Once they turn 18, she probably doesn't get a payout from Muhammad anymore. She says time and time again, that David does not support her financially. I think she's obviously allowed to live in his house and stuff, but it seems a lot of what she wants to do is going to have to come out of her own bank account. And I I do think she is grooming her children to keep her in the lifestyle she's become accustomed to. Yes. Speaking of this flight across the country to go see Gigi, she points out time and time again that flying is very bad for her condition. She'll get on a plane and just become so inflamed. She'll almost pass out. She'll just become a sweaty, heaving mess. So next they go to Switzerland. This time she does bring David Foster and she says they actually have a really nice time. It's like a Lyme specific institute, but it seems more like they're a spa, maybe like a med spa. Yeah, it's called Dr. Rouse and he has a cookbook too and a very specific diet. And so she arrives in Switzerland having been on this diet for months so that she can be the perfect patient. David is also getting treatments while he's there too. So I imagine some of the treatments are just like IVs and facials, lymphatic massages maybe. Here, finally somebody goes, why are you getting Botox? She goes, of course, I shouldn't do that. What am I thinking? What is the world thinking? Who purposefully injects toxins in their brain for vanity? In that moment, my body starts sweating. I feel embarrassed, reckless, and like the dumbest person on planet Earth. You know how she could have stopped that sweating? Armpit Botox. (laughs) Why did I do these things to myself without really thinking about them intelligently? I'm ashamed of my lack of judgment and appreciation for all the beauty God gave me naturally. Why didn't I honor that? It is funny, though, that she was there worried about the high metal count, the mold, She's allergic to all these things. She had 90 days of antibiotics and she was still going to get her Botox topped off. 
food. She was quicker to cut out solid food than she was to cut out Botox. And it's also, when was she getting the Botox? She had 10 days in bed for every one good day. And she would use her one good day to go get Botox. Is that what we're hearing? On their Zurich trip, the one blotch on an otherwise beautiful journey is that they have some friends in Gestad. How do you say that? Gestad? Stad. I call it Goosted. So they go to Goosted and... She is not in the mood. She's like, I am in recovery. I'm trying to get better. And David is making me go on this long car journey. I'm sick, shaking, and sweating with a fever after a four-hour hypothermia treatment. And David is determined to see them. So she is shaking and shivering in the car. They get to their friend's house. And she just goes straight to bed, spends the entire weekend in bed, comes out for one dinner because she just had to muster it to be a good guest. And then they go back to Zurich for her to continue treatments. And David goes home. Here she learns about electromagnetic frequencies that come from things like cell phones, computers, and lights and how they affect their body. The doctor she's at in Switzerland has this system that measures it in your body. And it turns out she's extremely high levels. She also has a non-functioning immune system. And in order to fix that, you have to focus on your gut because your gut is where your immune system comes from. So instead of trying to fix the Lyme, she's like, you have to treat your gut to make your immune system stronger. To fight the Lyme. Also, she starts doing these hyperbaric chambers where she she gives her body on purpose a fever of 103 degrees to try to kill out anything in it. And she'll do these for like six hours a day for weeks on end. It's like an expensive sauna. They do not work either. So she gets back to the States. She's back home with her kids and she is realizing that Bella is looking fucked up too. She notices that Bella is just looking sloppy on her horse. She's like, Bella is a world ranked horse rider and she is looking like a dumbass right now. What is happening? And then Bella falls off her horse and has an enormous bruise. And Yolanda is like, God damn it. This is the limes. So she sends Bella's info out to her Belgium doctor and says, is this Lyme? And you'll never believe it. It is also Lyme. Neurological Lyme. This is devastating news. And I feel trapped with a sense of helplessness like none I've ever felt before. Now I have not one, but two children with Lyme and no cure. I feel very alone in this because David is busy in the studio and Mohammed is not good at dealing with illness. He is highly sensitive and can't deal with the suffering of his loved ones. So instead he's in denial about what has really been going on. So she pulls Bella out of school again, I guess. And she says it's very frustrating because people think she's not sick just because, you know, she'll rest for 16 hours to go hang out with her friends for a few hours, take an Instagram photo. And people go, well, why was she okay with her friends? And she goes, you don't understand what it takes to be able to put on a brave face for just 30 minutes with your friends. She begins Bella and Anwar on a holistic protocol with antibiotics. And I do wonder why she's the one choosing the protocol. So now she's found another doctor. Dr. Richard Helfrich helped her friend's mom with chemo. He puts her on a very strict diet and 150 pills a day. And she goes, that sounds like a lot, but you spread them out like throughout the day. (laughs) And so this is when Ellie comes back in. She goes, the only person who can relate is Ellie, who has been living with ALS for more than three years. She is now trapped inside a paralyzed body with breathing and feeding tubes, yet she still has perfect brain function. Yeah, I'm sure you and Ellie are experiencing the same thing. I FaceTime her often, especially since she's the only person I know who's not running around with a busy life. (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) Around this time, a close girlfriend invites me and David to her house in Bali. And this seems like the perfect plan to get the silence I crave. Luckily, she was already going to go to Jakarta anyway for one of David's work events. And that's why I just like, I don't understand. To fly to Jakarta would be a lot for me. A healthy 29-year-old. Yeah, it's hard to do long flights. It's hard to be on a plane all the time. They're not good for your immune system. And... We read her talk about flaring up. It seems like of all the work events to go to, the Jakarta one, maybe even if you are fully healthy, 
with kids, you'd go, I don't need to go to Jakarta right now. It's pretty far for a one night event. David's too busy to go to Bali, but she's like, I'll go to Jakarta for the event and I'll go to Bali with my friend. David doesn't really understand why she wants to go to Bali alone. He thinks it's a little bit silly because I guess in the book, Eat, Pray, Love, the woman goes to Bali and finds a lover. And he's like, you're going to go to Bali and cheat on me. He says, have you read the book, Eat, Pray, Love? And she says, of course I haven't because I can't read. (laughs) That's one of her symptoms is that she can no longer read. So they go to Bali and it turns out it's almost a holiday in Bali where no one talks for the whole day. And Yolanda is stoked as hell. She's like, this is going to be the best day of my life. They do not speak. She writes a 23 page essay about what's going on in her life for her family. What a blessing to have permission to live in silence for a day. The silence that I've been yearning for for so long, but somehow haven't been able to find or give myself. The sense of responsibility that I have to my husband and children always overrides everything I need. It's been a long time since I've been alone with my thoughts and I'm loving every minute of it. We're now up to like 18 weeks of nonstop treatments. The only reason she's not alone is because she always brings a friend. But she wakes up. She feels great. She goes for a walk. She goes for a swim. She writes 23 straight pages. The next day when they're talking again, they decide to trip on shrooms. And she's like, oh, that was so fun too. (laughs) We belly laughed for five straight hours. We had the best day. So this woman who cannot get out of bed to go watch her daughter ride a horse is in Bali doing shrooms. I mean, this is like her third vacation since her chronic Lyme diagnosis. That she's been able to be fine on the vacation. She has a major realization on shrooms. If I die tomorrow, I'm not going to get a gold medal because I've only had a handful of boyfriends or hosted the perfect dinner party. I'm not going to get a gold medal for being the perfect wife. There's no award for being a good girl at the end of this journey. I just need to start living my truth. And I actually think that that's a very good realization to have. Yeah, it just, it turns out her truth is to have Lyme disease. I wish she had a different truth, but I do think in general, if you think there's something you have to be doing that doesn't bring you pleasure, like truly who at the end of your life is going to give a shit that you did it that way. After all of this, she gets home, even though she's able to swim, walk, laugh, play, she gets home and she still has the same joint pain, exhaustion, and all her other ailments. But I finally start to feel and understand that my emotional well-being is a very important part of this puzzle in uncovering the mystery of my chronic disease. Go to therapy, yo. Hey, yo, yo, you got to try therapy. And I know that's a lot coming from me, but I'm also not pretending to have chronic neurological Lyme disease. I like am blown away that she is not talking to somebody, that she is willing to travel the entire globe to get actually any substance injected into any part of her body. And she will not sit down and talk to somebody about what's making her unhappy. She's clearly unhappy. She hates her life. So she gets back and she finds out about a new treatment in Tijuana. She's really into the idea of going to get a treatment in Mexico because she says Mexico is a place where the doctors can practice freely without being limited by the FDA. Is that what we think the FDA does? Block medical innovation? I don't know. I've never actually innovated anything medically, but... Okay, here's what I don't understand. So all the people who go and get the stem cell research shot that they're doing in Tijuana, they stay in a hotel in San Diego on the U.S. border. Then they get dropped off at the border and a car comes and picks them up and takes them to this clinic in Mexico. She says in the van, she was with a whole group of people, a mix of every age, race, class, shape, and size. But she also says... For what we paid, I should be flying in and out of Mexico by private helicopter. I don't think a lot of poor people are spending all this money on experimental drugs. I'm going to be honest. I don't think they are either. But she goes in the basement of some business building. They shoot her up a stem cell. And then they drop her off at the border. And they're like, we can't take you back across. So you have to wait in line at customs. And so she has to wait in a five-hour line after just had something shot into her butt. And they give her a VIP pass and they're like, this will help you cut to the front. It turns out they were fake passes. There isn't actually a VIP line at customs. She doubles back and does it again with Bella almost immediately. Even though it didn't seem to help her at all. It didn't do anything. 
Anyway, now it's time to shoot another season of Housewives. She says, I'm not a quitter or someone who goes back on my word. I signed a binding contract for four seasons. She also is starting to get upset that a lot of her friends have abandoned her. People were very empathetic and rallied around me during the first few weeks, even months, and first years that I was sick. But the truth is that most people got on with their lives and seemed to think that I should too. They just stopped checking in. This is hurtful and really hard for me to wrap my head around because I come from such a different culture. Maybe my expectations of friends and family members are too high because I'm willing to do so much for them. So can I say that this actually made me really sad because I do think that this is a real issue that people with chronic illness deal with. I think that it is easy when someone first gets sick to step up to the plate and be like, we have to buy them flowers and cards and meals and snacks and help them out. I have my own shortcomings with this. Like I know people who have long-term conditions and I sometimes think about the fact that it's easier when it first gets diagnosed to be top of mind and you want to help out. And then as it happens longer, you feel like it's just like, okay, life resumes. And it's like, no, it doesn't. This person is still suffering and they deserve your help. But Yolanda has this expectation that everyone around her, people she barely knows, are just going to drop everything and help her all the time. Like her Beverly Hills castmates, who she doesn't know at all. She didn't know them literally at all before she started the show. She's like, why aren't they overly sympathetic? And why are they just obsessed with getting a good storyline? And it's like, because it's their job to get a good storyline and they're very good at it. I also think the second half of that line, maybe it's because I'm willing to do so much for them. It's such a big part of her that she really sees herself as the most giving, generous, perfect person. And she holds herself to this high standard that only she's ever met and nobody else meets the standard she holds herself to. She says, maybe if I had a husband who said, it's okay, baby, you rest and get better and I'll take care of your bills. I wouldn't feel as much pressure to make money while I'm struggling with my health. But that's not the case. That's a pretty scathing line. I mean, she is spending a lot of money on treatments. I will say, though, she consistently throughout this book, she doesn't explicitly say universal health care, but she does say over and over how it's appalling, unacceptable, immoral, evil that in this country, not everyone can get care. She sees herself as this warrior who's helping everyone with chronic neurological Lyme. I'm going to go out on this journey and just keep fighting and trying everything no matter what so that I can find the cure and bring it to people. But in addition to finding the cure and bring it to people, she's like, it then also has to be accessible to everyone. And that feels equally important to her. And I will commend her for that. I also will commend her for that. So around this time, her mom is also diagnosed with uterine cancer, which is really horrifying. Her mom has to undergo a hysterectomy. So she decides that it's really important for her to be able to go home and see her mom. So she tacks it on to a housewife's trip. <laughs> she decides that in order to go back to Holland, she has to tag along to a trip in Majorca where they go yachting for a week and then she'll go to Holland. And while they're in Majorca, she hears that Bella gets a DUI. She's obviously heartbroken. I mean, that's really hard. I'm going to read what is written in this book, and then you can read the letter that was actually published. Midway through the flight, I open up my laptop and try to write Bella a long letter. Initially, it's difficult to put my thoughts together and process all that's happened in the past 24 hours, but I have to accept the fact that Bella made a human error. I still make mistakes, and I'm over 50. Expecting my children not to make them is unrealistic and unfair. It's up to me to show Bella the lesson here as well as the consequences. I write about how much she means to me and how fatal this mistake could have been. I tell her how grateful I am that she didn't hurt anybody or herself and that she needs to know that I will have her back 24-7 and 365 days a year through good times and bad. Okay, so I don't know if this is that letter, but this is another letter that was written to Bella around the same time that got leaked to the press. I don't know how. I'm going to read you what is in this letter and we'll see how much it matches up. Bella, I just got your car back from the pond. I know it's supposed to be pound, but I love the idea of Yolanda Hadid having to like wade into a pond to get Bella's car back. And I was looking for your purse as I stumbled on the most disastrous car I have ever seen in my entire life. Now I am really in tears and really scared. Who are you? What were you thinking? You have literally turned into a spoiled, unthankful, unthoughtful, careless human being that is lucky to be alive. 
What an eye-opening experience to find beer cans, pink kitty bottles with vodka, bottles with Adderall, Vivants, rolling papers, and a car full of dirty clothes, dirty underwear, and with bloodstains, Tampax. I've honestly never seen anything like it. Was your life that terrible at home? You need to do some serious soul-searching, Bella, to see how you got where you are and then get on your knees and thank God for being alive. I have really failed as a mother, and that is just the honest truth. How did I trust you were okay? Am I that stupid and naive? Or are you that good of a liar? Why, Bella? <laughs> what have I done to deserve this? I am so freaked out. How are you going to survive? Why am I even working my ass off to get you in a beautiful apartment if you cannot even keep your car clean? Is that how you're going to trash your home? If your car looks like the way you feel about yourself, you really need professional help. I thought that together we were going to be able to work through this, but now I'm not sure anymore if I have the tools to help you unless you are really understanding what this has come to. I need answers and explanations. Answers and explanations. Why? I have to say, I feel like that's a letter my mom would write me. <laughs> As a punishment, she makes Bella be a model. <laughs> she drops her off a few weeks later at New York anyway. She also gets her her own fancy apartment in a doorman building in New York City. Yeah, but she has to have a roommate because Bella has Lyme's disease and so she can't be left alone. Bella writes an apology note and says, What happened doesn't mean you're not a good mother, just that kids make mistakes, you know? Bella says... I get it, baby. I still make mistakes and I'm 50. So yes, I know that. Bella has always been my mirror. Somehow she always has words of wisdom at the right time. I also want to point out when Bella becomes a model, she says the shoots were hard for her because she never really feels well, but we came well prepared. She doesn't have to be a model. They're very rich. Why are we forgetting? She's obsessed with this financial independence by 21. Maybe let your limes ridden daughter rest. Two semesters in, she says Bella's getting all A's and she's doing great at Parsons, but she's also booking a lot of modeling jobs and doing Lyme treatments. That would be a lot for a healthy person to keep up with, let alone a teenager battling chronic Lyme disease. She sits down and says, Bella, a modeling career might not be here forever, but you can always go back to college and further your education. Muhammad doesn't really interfere with my parenting style, but he is dead set on all three kids going to college, so I have to support him on that. But I also know my business, and as I advised Gigi, I truly believe that if you hit one sweet spot in this career, you grab it with both hands and go for it. If you let it pass, it may never come again. I discuss it with her treating physicians and get a doctor's note so that Bella can take a leave of absence from Parsons and put her studies on hold while she focuses on modeling and, most importantly, getting healthy. I am so sorry. That is so funny to me that they took the time to get a doctor's note. Imagine being her professor and being like, Bella Hadid couldn't come to class today. She's sick. And she's GQ model of the year. (laughs) One of Yolanda's recurring things is you don't get it until you get it. And she's like, you can't imagine how debilitating and painful and horrible it is. And yet she pushes her child who supposedly has the exact same symptoms and disease as her to become an international supermodel, which involves a lot of plane travel, a lot of early mornings. It is a long, exhausting day. Like that is a lot of work. I mean, obviously, Gigi and Bella both had a ton of nepotism help to get them in the industry. But at the end of the day, like the work is the work and you do have to show up and put in like 30 hours and never eat and fly constantly. Yeah, it's not a good career for someone who can't get out of bed. So around this time, another stroke of luck. Guess who she meets? She meets this guy, Aaron Cameron, a naturopath and holistic health practitioner who uses all sorts of unique devices like the Rife machine, a high frequency healing device. He works out of his garage in Malibu. And I said, I know this man. And if you are like me, a frequent watcher of the Housewives, you go, I know an Aaron who is a fake doctor working (laughs) out of Malibu. That's Denise Richards' husband. Here's the thing is I feel like we have been hard reading this. There was a point in this book where I was like, oh my God, this is such a sad disease all these people have this thing and clearly like a lot of people are experiencing similar symptoms like something is happening until we reached this crescendo 
I did believe her almost. And I do believe that clearly a lot of people are experiencing some of the things and there needs to be something done. People are losing their lives to something that is not understood. But in case you were following Yolanda Hadid too far down her rabbit hole of holistic medicine, I do want to take this time to allow you to listen to Dr. Aaron Cameron speak for just two minutes on his line of work. Everything you've been taught about how disease process and stuff works is not true. I have to be careful. Say what? Age of 12, I was living next to the largest nuclear facility in North America. I watched everybody die of cancer. I couldn't understand why we could split an atom with sound and cause a nuclear explosion. If you look at an atom... There's lots of space, right? Electron, proton, neutron, whatever. There's space, lots of space. space, space. It's empty space, right? 99.9% is space, but it's oscillating at a frequency that appears to be real in our reality. Does it make sense? Yeah. Traditional isn't traditional. It's allopathic. And allopathic, it means alternative medicine. Look it up. It's all a measurement of the electromagnetic spectrum frequency. I break down stuff so you can all heal you. I don't heal anybody, by the way. I remove blocks, discord, information. I rupture my Achilles tendon. I regrow it in two months. No surgery. How's that possible? No surgery, is that what you're saying? Without surgery? Wow. Zero. Well, there's cancer in every one of you right now. Cancer happens all the time. Really? If we really? end up off of Mulholland, you know I was about why? to say, wait, should we be talking about this? Because I, I feel like I'm big pharma. I don't even care. Do you even I know? Say? We already have no. people following us. Let me I go have back. people following me all the time. You or, do? Yeah. yeah. What kind of people? You have people following Why do you have people following you? Aaron has a job where people get tremendous results and sometimes certain organizations don't like to see those results because they make a lot of money otherwise and there's times we're followed. Do you want to know why cancer comes in? Why? Yes. Because it's protecting you of an infection your immune system did not respond to and you would have died in 12 hours. Really? It's your best friend that protected you from somebody that's going to shoot you in the head with a bullet. Really? That's what cancer is. I'll prove it all day long. So, yeah, I don't know. I guess if to you that sounded legit, then believe me. But to me, he sounds crazy. And it made me realize that like Yolanda is crazy because like this is the world she is operating in. Anyway, once again, this contact sends her back to Mexico for treatment that is not impeded by the evil FDA. It doesn't work again. She keeps comparing it to the Dallas Buyers Club, which is again AIDS. She really believes that Lyme is today's AIDS. So she goes on a trip to Holland with the Real Housewives cast once again on vacation. She's like, it looks like I was healthy, but it's because I was resting to look healthy for when we were shooting. And after she gets back, that's when she decides to put a stop to 150 pills a day. <laughs> You're the biggest warrior that I've met in 30 years, Richard says. Richard Helfrich, who prescribed her 150 pills a day. You've been so diligent. But after swallowing thousands of pills, this warrior can't swallow one more, I tell him. His protocol strengthened my overall health and more than anything else I've tried so far. But she just has to stop. It's too many pills per day. At this point, she's exhausted by running their Malibu house. She says having a full-time staff in a house can be very stressful because everyone needs direction and my brain can't handle it. Did you know that it's actually harder to run a house with a staff than it is to just run a house? <laughs> you may think cooking and cleaning are hard, but it's actually a lot harder to tell people to cook and clean for you. And so everyone listening who does not have a full-time staff should count their lucky fucking <laughs> stars. <laughs> you could have the burden of people doing all your work for you. 
So because managing a house with a full staff is exhausting, they moved to their Beverly Hills condo. David is not stoked on the idea. He says, if you leave this house, you're not coming back. And my theory here is that she is spending a lot of money on treatments. I feel like David doesn't really believe her. He's kind of like, we didn't build this dream giant house for you to only live here on the weekends. And I think he did it kind of to freak her out. And then she called his bluff. I was like, okay, let's go, bitch. I don't need any big fancy things. That's one of her messages throughout this book is that she actually doesn't need fancy things and she hates superficial shit. All she wants is her health. However, she like insists her daughters live in doorman buildings in New York. They are working models while they go to school. They have to be rich by the time they're 21. The hatred she feels for Botox feels ironic. So now in this game of where in the world is Yolanda Hadid going for an experimental Lyme treatment... We go to Korea and she decides to take Bella and Anwar too because she's like, this is the treatment that I've decided we all need right away. She gets the idea from Allie Hilfiger, who she says is a very smart cookie and a Lyme warrior. But the truth is worrying about Anwar and Bella keeps me up at night and I'm completely alone when it comes to their health. Muhammad doesn't understand what they're going through. How can he? He isn't there when the children are crying in the middle of the night from pain or spend hours on the couch when they'd rather run around with their friends like normal teenagers. I guess it's hard for him to accept or understand how three people in his family could be sick with the same disease. The weight is only on my shoulders, my sick shoulders. The treatments are extremely expensive, but what good is money in the bank if I'm too sick to enjoy it? Or even worse, if I'm dead. These treatments, again, do not help. For seven days, I report to the clinic every morning at nine for treatments, including vitamin drips and immune modulators. The treatments are exhausting, so I don't have the energy to do much else except go to the Korean spa at night for body scrubs and to use the infrared sauna. No wonder Asian women have the most beautiful skin in the world. They care for it with so much dedication. Anyway, she keeps us updated with her Bravo blog, which is hard for her to keep up with because she's so sleepy. She says she's learned to ingest to the new normal and the rebel inside of her is just not able to accept this silent disability. Lyme disease has become a fast-growing epidemic worldwide and I'm determined to help find a cure and figure out a way to share knowledge with the millions of people struggling with this debilitating disease. And if this was real, I really admire her tenacity. I just feel like she's lost her gourd. So she sees another Lyme literate doctor in New York, Dr. Harwitz, and he explains to her that Lyme is just one part of your problem. There's a whole army that has invaded your body and you need to start taking them down systematically. You're not just fighting Lyme and co-infections like Babesia and possible exposure to Q fever. You also have evidence of heavy metals and mold toxins with detoxification problems, nutritional deficiencies, mitochondrial dysfunction, multiple hormonal abnormalities, chronic insomnia, and an imbalance of part of your body that controls your blood pressure, as well as being deconditioned. I guess my feeling is like she is daily taking like an insane amount of vitamins, IV drips. She is on so much shit at this point. I do believe her body is out of whack. She's doing colonics and enemas every day. I believe that she's not right. Yeah, I do believe her body's fucked up. She's like 90 days of antibiotics at one point. Then she did those 150 pills a day for however the fuck long. And she's flying around the world getting stem cells shot into her fucking ass, getting coffee shoved up her butt. (laughs) She's doing coffee enemas three days a week. I just don't think that that's good for you. And it's funny because every time she goes on one of these vacations and takes a break from it, she feels better. Curious, isn't it? So while she's in New York, she also has to do Bravo obligations. She goes on Watch What Happens live and she says Andy Cohen is very understanding of her condition and the fact that she can't do much talking and she's very overwhelmed by the sitch. 
And she says on Watch What Happens Live, I guess that's the most frustrating part of the disease. You look so normal from the outside. It's not like people with cancer where you can tell they're sick, I say. Lyme is a silent killer and an invisible disability. I found this deeply fucked up in every single way. I'm not sure if anyone listening has known people who struggle with cancer. When you're in active treatment for cancer and undergoing chemo, it's maybe obvious and certain medications are very obvious. That is not what cancer always looks like. There are a lot of people who have cancer that you cannot see. There are people who undergo treatments and then just have to live with cancer and keep it at bay with various treatments and they don't look like they're sick necessarily. Unless I mean, Katie Couric had two different husbands who she she didn't didn't know were dying of cancer. To be like, you know, cancer is easy because you can see it is fucking psycho. Or like you're lucky you look like shit. (laughs) Unfortunately, I still have my perfect body. So she's still trying to heal herself and her two children. It really brings all of them close together because they're constantly taking care of her. And then, of course, Anwar and Bella are also going through treatments. And she says, often we sit on the couch and have our IVs together and talk about life. I've always known that he is an old soul. But during this difficult year, he's really starting to tap into his own spirituality. He has surrounded himself with a great group of friends who are discovering their higher consciousness and purpose in life. It's a beautiful thing to watch. I'm sorry. Who's his friends? I can't think of anything worse than a bunch of rich kids from Beverly Hills, 16-year-old boys telling me about their purpose in life and their higher consciousness. I would kill them. (laughs) Anyway, David continues pushing her. He's very into kind of forcing her beyond her limits, which she finds very frustrating. Reading this book, I really had sympathy for her. And then when we went back and watched The Real Housewives, To see on camera what it is that she's saying was only like five or ten minutes of feeling good. You're like, okay, no, no, no. You were on an overnight trip with the girls or they go to Holland for a whole week. When she says she's able to gather her energies for her contractual obligations, it's not like, oh, I had to show up and show face. It's like I went on a yacht. She does a lot. She's literally jumping off the side of boats. Then David has to go to Miami to record an album with Andrea Bocelli. He'll be there for a week and really wants Yolanda to come. She says, I feel horrible. I'm not sure if I can travel. And he says, you'll be okay. We'll be flying private. And once we get there, you can just sit by the pool and relax. And she's like, even though he sees how much I struggle, he just doesn't get that I can't sit by the pool and recover. That's not what it is. But she's a good wife. So she flies private to Miami with her husband. And there she is craving raw tobacco. And so she sits on the balcony and smokes raw tobacco and it calms her nervous system. And she says, I trust that my body craves what it needs. She also is walking on the beach to charge her body with ions. And she says it's hard for David to understand her connection with the earth. But a lot of times whenever she's feeling very overwhelmed, she sits on the grass or in the water to connect with earth. I just find it very interesting that a lot of times throughout this book, she's called herself the perfect patient and that she does everything she can for her health. She cuts out sugar when she needs to, carbs when she needs to, but she's sitting on a balcony smoking tobacco. She talks about how whenever she has a procedure, they tell her not to eat or do anything beforehand, but her rebellious self, her Dutch warrior rebel, likes to stop for a coffee in the morning before she goes. She gets a latte from Starbucks every morning before a big surgery. And I just don't think that that's the perfect patient. They come to realize that keeping tabs on all her medications, her treatments, her journeys, her symptoms, it's just too much for one sick woman. So they end up hiring a health advocate named Daisy who had Lyme, is in remission, and her full-time job, Monday through Friday, is to write down everything Yolanda is experiencing, making sure she takes all of her vitamins on time, and just help her decide what her next step on this Lyme journey will be. She says that David is pretty on board with it because he wants his lively, sexy, funny, and intelligent partner back. 
And she starts getting really into clonics. She decides that clonics are the thing that's going to save her. She's supposed to do a clonic and then a coffee enema every morning. But one day she's at the coffee enema first. And when they're doing her colonic, look, look, screams my colonic lady. I quickly turn around to find France is pointing at the glass irrigation tube connected to the colonic machine. Inside, we see a huge creature about 16 inches long and so wide that it fills the entire circumference of the tube moving in perfect slow motion. It has octopus-like suction all around it and what looks like a big head on each end. Franz is in such shock that she doesn't even think to stop the machine so we can study and take pictures. Instead, it gets sucked away and we stare at each other in astonishment. I can't believe that big fat monster just came out of my ass. In 33 years, I've seen a lot, but I've never seen anything like that. So she is convinced that this feeling she has that something is eating her from the inside out. Now she's seen proof of a monster in her body that was eating her on the inside out. And after this moment, she becomes obsessed with dissecting her own so she becomes obsessed with doing clonics every day and she sets up a lab in one of her bathrooms and every time she clonixes herself she takes the stool out and starts dissecting it for parasites and you'll never believe it but she finds dozens of parasites it turns out she was just chock full of literal worms she sends photos to david and he's like for the love of god stop she's fascinated she's obsessed with her butt worms She writes this blog on Bravo and she goes, I must tell you this story. When I was young, I fell in love with a little cow whose mother died. I bottle fed it every day, let it suck on my chin and babied it until it was stable. I just recently found out that that little love gave me Q fever, which has been a low grade infection my entire life. You kissed a cow 48 years ago and you've had Q fever ever since? She Frenched a cow. Talking about it, she goes, in some ways, it's like AIDS in the early 1980s. She finds out she has all these things, Q fever being one of them. She has tons of parasites and she doesn't know where she got them, but she's like, I must have had parasites in my body for the last 20 years. She says, it's hard to imagine where I got so many parasites, but she did. One of the parasites she gets is called ropeworm. And she has pictures in the book of all of the ropeworms that are coming out of her. And I have to say, I did my own little research because she's doing colonics every day. And I remember recently, you guys may recall, there was a horse dewormer that became very popular for human use called Invectorman. And I remember seeing that on Facebook pages for these Invectorman using groups, they're all like, oh my God, look what's coming out of my butt. It's these huge worms. They're called ropeworms. Only one doctor on earth has ever published a study about them he thinks they've only existed since 2013 and it's a brand new parasite that affects people every other doctor thinks it's just mucus basically you're clonicking out your own intestines at this point and they look wormy but they're just it's just tissue so she is now clonicking herself to death from the inside out basically and dissecting them and thinking they're worms and then sending them to her husband So then she goes to Europe again. She's seeing more doctors. It turns out she has a mouthful of metal-based crowns that are blocking her healing. But she's not ready to deal with that yet. And then tragedy strikes again. Their dog of 13 years, Lucky, is not doing too well. And he's basically on his last days. And she says, losing Lucky is absolutely devastating. He's a part of our family. And energetically, he was my partner in crime. I raised my children with him. And then she goes on to say... It's a difficult loss to process for the children and me, but someone told me that Lucky maybe gave up his life to save mine. I don't know if that's true, but I do know he will always be a little angel on her shoulders. Lucky gave up his life to save yours? Lucky was 13. I've lost dogs before and it's absolutely devastating, but I've never been like, they gave up their life to save. What does she think life is? That was a tough line to process for me. But the show must go on. So now we're off to the Infusio Treatment Center in Germany in Frankfurt run by Dr. Klinghart. She feels like she's getting worse in Germany. She's doing video diaries and saying, if I die, use my body for research. She's trying to give up her life for the limes. 
She comes home and finally, after this is now three or four years of trying everything literally on the planet she can think, she doesn't feel any better. And she says to David, I'm done. Here's the baton. You and Daisy are in charge because I have no more ideas. David says, if you do exactly what I'll say, I'll take the baton. I agree with that a moment's hesitation. The parasite pictures I emailed David from Germany really scared him and got his attention. So he says he wants her to do an endoscopy camera capsule to see what's going on in these intestines that parasites are shooting out from. He wants her to do a full body scan, which she hasn't done in years since her original non-diagnosis. He also wants her to do stem cell treatment in the Bahamas and get dental x-rays. So when she gets this full body scan, it turns out years ago, her first set of implants exploded in a water skiing accident. It turns out there are bits of silicone floating all around her body, leaking toxins into every last inch of her. She decides to get her regular implants out, like her fresh implants, and the leaky implants that are just floating around Lucy Goose. So right now, there is something called breast implant sickness. And a lot of women express feeling sick, and then they have their implants taken out, and they feel better. There is no like medical studies necessarily that say that this is a real thing. But I was talking to this doctor and she was like, 100% everything that's foreign in your body, your body will reject. And she was telling me about the history of breast implants and how they keep trying to change it because every breast implant, something will attach to it and then it all calcifies. Just common sense would say, it's not great to throw something in there that doesn't belong in there. I'm sure it was not making her feel good. And to have it leaking all around, I don't think that that's good for you. I don't think it's good for you. And once again, she has another very strong come to Jesus about plastic surgery. She says, how could I have ever been so stupid and uneducated that I allowed a man to make me think I even needed those stupid implants to begin with? My body was perfect exactly the way God intended it to be. Why in the world did I mess with it? I was a fucking moron to put this shit in my body. That does tell me that Muhammad Hadid made her get a boob job. But it also makes me wonder why she made Bella get a face job. So in order to get strong enough for her explant surgery, she has to go to the Bahamas for a stem cell infusion of some kind. She comes back and then she has this bizarre exchange with her children. Once again, it's written about in this book and transcribed, not the way it happens on the TV show. Where it happened. And when you realize that it was filmed, you realize how weirdly emotionally manipulative it is. So this is a woman who's been going through extensive medical experiences for the last four years. And she sits her children down and her mother and shows them her will and says, you need to know what this is, worst case scenario with this surgery. And they're like, why are you talking like this? It freaks us out for you to casually be saying you might die. And she's like, well, nothing bad will happen, but you need to know. Gigi said, I don't know how you can say that so calmly, mommy. When we watch the scene back, there is no mommy. It's Gigi kind of like worried and being like, why are you casually throwing a will around? The tone of her children in this book are deeply earnest and like, mother, please, mother, please take your medicine so we can all play together. But on the show, you can tell that their actual tone is frustration that she's so casually talking about the fact that she might die. So she gets her breast implant out. And of course, they can only get 95% of it all. So then she starts doing all these weird things to try to detoxify the last 5% of floaty implant. And Gigi is appointed head nurse to help her recover. And I'm like, didn't you have a full-time health advocate? Why is Gigi changing her bandages? Of course, her and David are still falling apart. She has put on some weight during all of this. And she says, David likes me very skinny. And the old me was okay with this. But now I wonder, why did I care? I have gracefully let go of trying to impress anyone. After my breast surgery, I'm in no mood to be anyone's sex object anymore. But she also is quick to point out that it's actually not hard for her to lose weight. So as soon as she's healthy again, it'll come off in a snap. 
Gigi is really blowing up as a model. She gets the Victoria's Secret show, and now it's Anwar's turn to be thrust into the scene. She says Anwar is unsure, but I feel it's important for him to be exposed to different aspects of the fashion industry, especially because he has such a talent and passion for designing. Gigi, she says, had always had an interest in being in front of the camera, loved photo shoots, loved cheesing. Bella was a little unsure and also very sick, so it was hard for her to model, but it was the right thing for her to be thrown into. Anwar has literally no interest in modeling, has a flair for design, but she's throwing him in anyway. And this is a kid that she's saying is very sick. David is at the end of his rope. It's his birthday. He calls her and says, cancel dinner. We'll talk later. He comes home and essentially says, I can't do it anymore. I'm out. He then moves into the Beverly Hills Peninsula Hotel. She doesn't paint David well in this book. And by doesn't paint him well, she paints him really poorly. But he says to her, your sick card is up. And she is stunned. She says that she'll forever be grateful that everything he suggested found a problem that when she addressed it worked. Getting rid of my implants, that made me feel much better. Eventually, she gets her teeth done and she gets all of her porcelain root canals. It turns out they were all full of metals and not pure porcelain. And so that was leaking toxins into her mouth. And she's like, so he was completely right. Of all the things that he suggests, she goes through with all of them and they all make her feel better immediately which is in juxtaposition to all of the things she had been doing herself, flying to Korea and driving to Tijuana and going to Switzerland over but and over But they were again. all futile. And by the end of that summer, they were able to do a two-week yacht trip around South America. And I just find it interesting that the minute David takes initiative and is personally invested in making sure she gets better, suddenly all of those situations do help her. And all of a sudden, she does have the energy and can go on a vacation and have a great time. By that November, David calls for divorce. So they move out. They get a new apartment on Wilshire. And this begins the next chapter of her life. She's basically just figuring it out on her own now. It feels like things aren't as bad as they were. She's trying new treatments, but they're much more subtle. Like she does an ayahuasca trip with her friend Paige. She starts doing these things called LDIs, which are low-dose immunotherapies. I think it's almost like mini vaccines. So she's doing these and she finally has this brilliant idea and it comes to her and she says, why should I continue to inject myself with other people's bugs? Why not use my own bugs? If we're trying to desensitize my immune system, let's be specific. This seems like a much more precise way to attack this chapter of my journey than being injected with the typical Lyme mix, which contains more than 70 strains of various pathogens. So they ask Dr. Klingart how to make an LDI. He sends an email with step-by-step directions and she starts creating her own pathogens to inject back into her body. I asked Dr. Sigari to save my tonsils after surgery because I know the panda's bacteria is in them. I also save my dead tooth and collect my stool, urine, blood, and saliva to make nozodes, which are homeopathic preparations created from bodily tissue. Daisy and I proudly look at the sterile cups with my concoctions as we patiently wait for my goods to incubate at room temperature for three to four days at a time. This project probably sounds totally disgusting to most people. It does. But to me, it is the most exciting thing I've done this year. It takes us about two weeks to make all the nozodes preparations so cussing each dilution 50 times is probably the hardest part. We end up with different strengths of dilutions, which we call C1 to C12 for each of the following tonsils, tooth, stool, vag, blood, urine, and saliva. A total of 84 sterile vials. She brings them to her doctor and he injects them into her. My five-year journey has almost earned me a PhD in Lyme and psychology. So it seems like she starts to feel better. She starts writing this book. She's doing her best. Unfortunately, Ellie does pass away. She says, looking at Ellie, I realized that ALS is like Lyme on steroids. Mm -hmm. And she believes that they're deeply connected. She thinks that Lyme is a pathway to ALS. And it's like, I don't think it is. The book sort of just peters out where she's like, I've become the face of Lyme. 
The book ends with, you'll never believe it, her mom, who had, of course, a double mastectomy in her early 40s, a hysterectomy because of uterine cancer in her 60s. It turns out she's had Lyme for the last 50 years. Yeah, she too had Lyme. So I think what we've learned from this book is that we all have Lyme. I'm Lyme, you're Lyme. We're all Lyme together. And so, Claire, I'd like to ask you, as we wrap this episode up, do you believe Yolanda? Um, No. I mean, she has hepatitis B. I do think she is a woman, is like prone to sickness and something is wrong. Like, I do believe that her body hurts and she is fatigued and stuff. But I do also think, one, she lived a miserable little life. She didn't live a miserable little life, but she was depressed in her opulent life. I think she was obsessed with this idea that she was better than everybody. And when she started not being better than everybody, she was like, I think this cold is actually the culprit. And it was like, it's not a cold like you have. It's It's a different thing. I'm dying. It just seems crazy that at the beginning of this book, she's like, I didn't know of anybody who had chronic Lyme. And by the end, she has it. Two of her kids have it. Her sister-in-law has it. Her best friend has it. Her Her mom mom has has it. it. Is Lyme contagious? Yolanda, get away from me. You're giving everybody Lyme. Like you said before, she was used to being type A best at everything. And then when she stopped, I think it had a lot to do with coming on the housewives. I think it had a lot to do with seeing herself reflected back at herself and realizing that she didn't there as well as she thought she did. I think she thought she was like the smartest, hottest girl in the room and then not being able to have like witty remarks and probably seeing herself on Bravo blogs being called like not smart or something like that threw her for a loop. And she was like, it's because my brain is broken. I also wonder how much of it, like she wanted the attention from David. I think Mm -hmm. she was shocked to see him not respond the way she thought. And then it became a vicious circle where as she was enduring more and more treatments, she was getting sick because you can't put your body through that and expect it to just work. I feel like maybe Zane hit her because she was trying to give that baby Lyme. <laughs> All right, you guys, we love you so much. Don't forget that this week we have our free comedy show, December 2nd. And then, of course, join the Patreon where we will be going more into it this week. We are going to do a lot of housewives, archival research. <laughs> I'll also be giving my hot take on Jen Shaw. There's been a lot of drama recently. I can't wait. And don't forget, fresh merch is out. And now a thank you to our beautiful five-star wormies. Sarah Sell 14, I wouldn't sell you for a million bucks. La Lauren 999, you're a thousand to me. Anna 8, you friggin' ate that review. Lacey Trailer, thank you for tailoring this with some fresh lace. McJean 78, that's what I'm ordering next time I go to McDonald's. Blackberry Mare, hell yeah, BBM me. Scarface Q, you can't handle the truth. I think that's the wrong movie, but it's that era and I appreciate you. A beautiful party, invite me next time. Lucy8518, thank you for staying loose. Like Disco Superfly, hell yeah, baby. Disco's not dead to me. Ashlita, Ashlita, we practically have the same name. And for that, I adore you. Molly Brooks 33, thank you for brooking us a great review. Love Pink Lucy, I will paint my whole house pink just for you. Shia Colon Colon, thank you for your punctuation. Shiv Reviews, I will shiv anyone who tries to take away your genius reviews. Kelsey 412, thank you for staying a step ahead of the 411. And that's all we have this week. Thank you guys so much. I. Friggin' love you.